Okay, first, a little bit of housekeeping. My proposed conversations with Calvinists are on hold until further notice, unfortunately. I'm still working my way through the institutes. I'm still trying to make them happen. It's just taking longer than I thought it would. I'm not going to mention the topic anymore until the conversations actually happen. My apologies again for the delay. Um, today's episode, I got the idea for it sort of on short notice. It's a little bit impromptu, but I think it's it's going to be very interesting. In this episode, I'm going to be seeing how much mileage I can get out of one idea in terms of arguing for what seems to me the most likely conception of punishment in the afterlife. Within Christianity, um, there are three, really more like four, positions on the question of whether um, sins are punished in hell. Um, you have the eternal conscious torment view, which is probably the one with which most people um, are familiar and which most people um, associate with Christianity. Uh, you have the view of annihilationism, that um, sins are punished by non-existence. And then you have the view that everyone goes to heaven. But this view, as stated, is not specific as to whether uh, people who deserve to go to hell first go there, but only temporarily, um, or if no one goes to hell ever at all. And um, the position that I'm going to be arguing for out of these four possibilities in this episode is the view that people go to hell, but only temporarily. And the master intuition here is that humans are finite moral agents. We're only capable of finite transgressions, not infinite transgressions. And what that means is we sin, and it deserves to be punished, but not infinitely, whether that be a punishment of infinite torture or infinite non-existence. Uh, Accordingly, it follows that the option of not punishing sin at all should not be on the table. It should not be the case, for example, that Adolf Hitler gets off scot-free. And I make no assumptions as to the length or the quality um, of the punishment that he undergoes in the afterlife, um, only that he does, and that his rehabilitation will require some kind of forgiveness um, after the present age has elapsed, as incredible as that may sound. So first I want to address the fact that some may quibble with my statement that um, the annihilationist position, the position that um, upon death, uh, those who are guilty of profound or heinous sin um, are destroyed. Um, some might quibble with my statement that um, annihilationism represents the imposition of an infinite sentence upon a finite transgression. Assume, for the sake of argument, that all human sin is finite. It may be argued that, in a way, um, the punishment for finite sin is finitude itself. It's not infinite, at least not in the sense of an infinite ongoing act of torture, as in eternal conscious torture or torment. Here's what I say in response to that. As far as I can make out, it is the imposition of an infinite sentence, because the non-existence is here conceived as punishment for sin. Conceivably, one could 
cease to exist for some defined interval and then come back into existence, although it's questionable whether that would teach would teach one anything, as indeed it is questionable whether non-existence um, really serves in establishing any kind of um, uh, justice, uh, uh, whether retributive or reformative. You don't get to say that the non-existence is the punishment, is the sentence for sin, and that it lasts forever, and that the punishment uh, is not infinite. It is. The non-existence is infinite. The non-existence is the punishment. There is, you know, another way it could go, which is uh, non-existence for a defined period. And that's not on the table. So, you know, I, I really think that, that that quibble is sort of misdirected. Now, regarding the sort of standard Augustinian position of hell as eternal conscious torment, you know, whether inflicted by a torturer or whether self-inflicted through, you know, sort of psych psychological uh, misery. When it comes to eternal conscious torment, there is an argument which its defenders are fond of making in response to the charge that eternal conscious torment represents an infinite punishment for a finite transgression. The argument is uh, quite old. It goes back um, as early as St. Anselm. And it's the argument that God is a uh, being or essence or something um, that uh, possesses infinite moral value or infinite dignity. And every sin in being a sin against God um, is a sin of infinite moral seriousness insofar as it offends um, the dignity of something or someone who is of infinite moral value. I'm going to be dwelling at length on this argument um, because uh, for all that, I don't think it's a very good argument and it's seriously problematic to, to employ it. Um, it's certainly one which people are fond of making um, ever since uh, the days of St. Anselm. And so uh, for better or worse, it has to be addressed. Here's the first question that I raise uh, in connection with this argument. Is it possible for a child or an infant to commit a sin of infinite seriousness against the dignity of God? In St. Augustine's time and in Anselm's time and until not too long ago, it, it, it would have been acceptable to just answer yes and that children are rightly condemned to an infinity of conscious torment, um, really just for the crime of existing. These days, that response is somewhat less popular. I'm anticipating that in 99% of discussions on this question, people are going to answer negatively to my question. They're going to say, no, children are just, for whatever reason, they're not capable of incurring that infinite punishment. To which my response is, why not? It, you know, it, it seems fundamentally unjust to, to steal um, a can of Coca-Cola from a store and then be sentenced to infinite torture in hell, um, you know, just as much as if one had been the author of genocide. I mean, maybe you get moved to the outer ring as opposed to the inner ring of hell, but still you get eternity in hell for something as 
small and trifling as, you know, stealing uh, a can of soda or uh, a pear tree from an orchard, whatever the case may be. The response here is, well, the only factor, the only determinant is, is of, of, of the length of a just sentence is the dignity of the one who is offended against. Sort of like if you slap uh, a feudal prince in the face, you're going to have to pay consequences for that, which are much greater than if you slap the peasant in the face. Well, fine, but if that's the only determinant, then why do children get off the hook? What is special and different about their case? The response that I anticipate here is the response that, well, they don't know right from wrong, which is really interesting because, again, it's suggesting that there's something more to the determination of, of guilt and the you know, proportionality of punishment than simply the dignity of the person that, it's offend, that, that one is offending against. The argument is already having to be undermined in order to um, provide this this exception, this way out. So, you know, the response is, they don't know right from wrong. But you as an adult, you know right from wrong. So, you know, something even as small as theft of a Coke can um, is going to rightly uh, land you in hell with an infinite sentence of punishment, etc. Well, okay, what, what if I'm... What if I'm from a culture where we don't have private property? And I didn't know you're not allowed to take whatever you want out of a store, just hypothetically. Am I liable for that punishment if I didn't know it was wrong? I mean, one should be, tempt one should be um, wary in answering yes here. Because, you know, ostensibly the difference between children and adults is that... Uh, Children don't know right from wrong, but adults do. And um, of course, when one sort of investigates the question of you know knowledge of good and evil, one immediately realizes that it's not as simple as, oh, you you um, you're born not knowing uh, right from wrong, and then someday at some magical age at a discrete punctiliar moment in time, you are zapped with the knowledge of uh, good and evil, and you know you know, for every question and every hypothetical, what's the right answer and what's the wrong answer? It doesn't work like that. You know, small children know that some things are wrong. Adults know that more things are wrong. Adults don't know what's the right response or the wrong response to, you know, many situations. And it's a continuum. And um, it seems that, you know, earthly laws are one thing. You know, we say ignorance of the law is no excuse. But as far as the justice of God, I mean, many of us are tempted to answer that uh, ignorance is an excuse. If you do something that you truly, sincerely didn't know was wrong, then you're not responsible for it. And it seems to me that one has to give that response um, if one wants to maintain that, you know, the reason children are off the hook is that they don't know uh, right from wrong. It seems to me there's no principled basis for saying that um, the ignorance, the moral ignorance of children is of some special and different and other kind than the the moral ignorance of adults. Unless one is saying that adults are obligated to possess an infinite amount of, of moral knowledge, of, of ethical discrimination, despite having lived only, you know, finite lives with, with you know, definite limitations on their cognitive capacities, you know, to me that just doesn't seem realistic seems to me that 
that the only sort of principled and non-arbitrary basis one has for getting children off the hook here is if you uh, allow or admit that adults um, are not guilty for sins uh, that they didn't know were sins. So, but now let's just try to game this out a little bit more. Let's take the case of someone who knowingly steals a can of soda from a corner store. And then immediately afterward, unfortunately, they're hit by a car and they die and they go to heaven. And let's suppose rather incredibly, but just for the sake of argument, that this was the only sin they had ever committed. So this person dies, they go up to the pearly gates and he's like, oh, you know, sorry about that soda, but it was just a little thing. Can, can you guys let me in? And they tell him, no, you can't come in. Because, you know, in addition to having stolen that soda, you, it, it, well, he's like, you know, do you know whom you wronged by stealing that soda? It's like, yeah, I owned, I, I wronged the owner of the store. But it's like, that's not the only person whom you offended. You also offended God, who is possessed of infinite moral dignity. And as such, you have also incurred, you know, uh, an offense of infinite magnitude. You know, I, I think of that, unless this person was steeped in, in Augustinian theology, they're not going to have known that they committed that sin. And you might say, well, this sin alone is one where ignorance is not an excuse. But I don't understand what principled basis one could have for saying that. If ignorance is an excuse for, you know, sin, and one is only guilty of those sins that one has knowingly committed, I don't understand why this sin alone should be the exception. The sin of having infringed against sort of the infinite majesty of God, which seems at least in a way always to be super added to every other sin, because every other sin has some person, um, you know, that is wronged, or maybe even just some, I don't know, some virtue that's offended against. But usually, see, the thing is, usually vices are wrong because they end up having negative consequences for other people. At least I would argue that's the right way to understand their wrongness, as it were. So, but most offenses, they have like, you know, some finite moral agent who is implicated as the victim of that, of that offense. And then it's like, on top of it, you have God, um, supposedly, according to this, you know, infinite moral seriousness argument. I, I think most people aren't going to know that they did that. I think most people uh, either haven't heard of this view or don't believe it. And you can't know something that you don't believe. You know, just if you think about that, you realize it doesn't make any sense. Like, if it's the case that every sin um, deserves infinite punishment because in addition to being a finite sin against, you know, some, some finite person, it's also an infinite sin against an infinite God, then that's a fact of which I am, I am ignorant because, because, you know, if you tell me, you know, this is how things work, I'm going to say, I, I don't agree. I, I think it works differently. If it is actually, if it actually is like that, then I'm mistaken as to the nature of reality. And, um, you know, I, I think that, that most people, you know, who aren't Christian, at least in our society, they don't believe in God. And I don't see how you can not believe in God, but also believe and know that uh, every sin is a, is a sin of, you know, infinite magnitude against an infinite God. See, one could 
come back here and do the presuppositional apologist thing and say, well, you really do know in your heart that God exists, but I don't like that move of playing psychologist to people. I mean, if only because you can always, you know, it, you know, two can play at that game. You can always turn it back on the other person and say, well, you're just a religious fundamentalist because your parents didn't show you enough love or you're psychologically repressed and, you know, all that nonsense, which I'm not fond of doing. So armchair psychologizing aside, it seems to me that the only people who would knowingly, you know, commit the, the transgression of sinning infinitely against God, even in the smallest of actions, are people who um, believe that this, this is how, um, you know, just punishment is actually meted out in the afterlife. Ironically, it seems to me that these people would all be Christians, if of a rather severe Augustinian variety, and as such are forgiven, you know, at least, you know, you know, in their own worldviews for, for sins of any and all magnitude by virtue of their having accepted the, oh, shall we say, imputed righteousness or infinite merit um, achieved by the sacrifice of Christ. So, you know, how it looks to me is that if if ignorance of sin is an excuse, then nobody is really uh, justly on the hook for, for an infinite punishment um, because the, the ones who sin without having their sins covered by Christ before death are people who are essentially ignorant of the fact that they you know, broke this uh, rule, that they, they sinned against uh, an infinitely dignified God. And those who, who know that, that all sin is of this gravity um, are already believers in Christ and so have their sins covered. You know, there are also people like me, you know, who, who believe in God and specifically in Jesus, um, but who don't think that, that punishment is meted out like this. And insofar as I don't believe it, I don't know how I can know it. And, and so it seems to me that I could, you know, uh, if it were needed, if the defense were needed, I could plead ignorance as an excuse. And if I can't, then I want to know why I can't for this sin, but I can for any other sin. Or if I can't for any other sin, then I want to know um, why children are off the hook. Um, but, you know, it might be said that, like like Augustine said, that children uh, aren't off the hook for this, that, you know, any infant who dies unbaptized goes to limbo where they experience very mild condemnation, but nonetheless, it's, it's not good. They're never, they're never um, going into the arms of the God of love. Needless to say, uh, you know, aside from the obvious moral repugnance of this view, I think that it has some pretty, what, undesirable implications, even for those who, who hold it. And um, I'm going to talk about those in a little bit. But first, with all the above going um, as preamble, um, I, I want to I want to uh, get into this article from the Stanford Encycl Encyclopedia of Philosophy um, that talks about how Augustine um, conceived hell and how he answered the, the question of you know what happens to infants and children um, who 
who die without having um, accepted Christ or without having been baptized. I'm just going to start a few paragraphs in. Uh, the article is Heaven and Hell in Christian Thought um, in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy Online. So why, one may wonder at this point, do the Augustinians believe that anyone, whether it be Judas Iscariot, Saul of Tarsus, or Adolf Hitler, actually deserves unending torment as a just recompense for their sins? The typical Augustinian answer appeals to the seriousness or the heinous character of even the most minor offense against God. In Cur Deus Homo, or Why God Became Man, a classic statement of the substitution theory of atonement, St. Anselm illustrated such an appeal with the following example. Suppose that God were to forbid you to look in a certain direction, even though it seemed to you that by doing so you could preserve the entire creation from destruction. If you were to disobey God and to look in that forbidden direction, you would sin so gravely, Anselm declared, that you could never do anything to pay for that sin adequately. As a proponent of the retributive theory, Anselm first insisted that God demands satisfaction in proportion to the extent of the sin. He then went on to insist that you do not make satisfaction for any sin unless you pay something greater than is that for whose sake, uh, namely God's, you ought not to have sinned. Anselm's argument then appears to run as follows. Because God is infinitely great, the slightest offense against God is also infinitely serious. And if an offense is infinitely serious, then no suffering the sinner might endure over a finite period of time could possibly pay for it. So either the sinner does not pay for the sin at all, or the sinner must pay for it by enduring everlasting suffering, or at least a permanent loss of happiness. Well, I would note that, that you know, just as one can never count to the end of infinity, so um, uh, an eternity in hell would never actually you know, succeed in paying back that which was owed. So there is that. Um, but maybe it's their own eternal inability to pay back the debt, which justifies their, you know, continuing to be in that condition unto the age of ages, you know, all this stuff. Obviously, I don't believe that, but I'm just, you know, discussing different ob objections that, and counter-objections that could be given. But what about those who never commit any offense against God at all, such as those who die in infancy or those who, because of severe brain damage or some other factor, never develop into minimally rational agents. These two, according to Augustine, deserve to be condemned along with the human race as a whole. For the whole human race, he insisted, was condemned in its, in its apostate head by a divine judgment so just that, even if not a single member of the race, including therefore those who die in infancy, were ever saved from it, no one could rail against God's justice. Enchiridion 99. Registering his agreement with Augustine, Calvin likewise wrote, Hence, as Augustine says, whether a man is guilty, whether a man is a guilty unbeliever or an innocent believer, he begets not innocent but guilty children, for he begets them from a corrupted nature. Augustine and Calvin both believed then that God justly condemns some who die in infancy. Indeed, if their innocence required that God would unite with them, uh, required that God unite with them, then the ground of their salvation would lie in themselves rather than, as Augustine saw it, in God's own free decision to save them from their inherited guilt. Yeah, so that's another thing that, you know, inherited guilt is, a, to me, that, that is like a square circle in the sense that guilt is the property of having committed certain sins. If one has not oneself committed, you know, some uh, 
hypothetical sin, but one's parent has, I don't see in what sense one can have the property of having committed that sin personally, if one didn't personally commit the sin, you know, any more than a circle can be square. Okay, with respect to the unborn twins Jacob and Esau, Augustine thus wrote, Both the twins were by nature children of wrath, not because of any works of their own, but because they were both bound in the fetters of damnation originally forged by Adam. As these remarks illustrate, the Augustinian understanding of original sin implies that we are all born guilty of a heinous sin against God, and this inherited guilt relieves God of any responsibility for our spiritual welfare. In Augustine's own words, now it is clear that the one sin originally inherited, even if it were the only one involved, makes men liable to condemnation. Augustine thus concluded that God can freely decide whom to save and whom to damn without committing any injustice at all. Now who but a fool, he declared, would think God unfair, either when he imposes penal judgment on the deserving or when he shows mercy to the undeserving. For the Augustinians, then, the bottom line is that even as our Creator, God, owes us nothing in our present condition because, thanks to original sin, we come into this earthly life already deserving nothing but everlasting punishment in hell as a just recompense for original sin. Um, okay. Yeah, what I would note here is that this is getting into dangerous territory because it's, it's making God's justice, his sense of justice, out to be something radically different in kind from our sense of justice. Um, and it was John Stuart Mill observed, if you say that God's notion of goodness is just, you know, radically different than ours, what is that but to say in so many words that, that God is not just? You know, if God's goodness is different than our goodness, then that's just really saying God is not good. He's not whatever it is that we mean by good, you know, which is what we mean by good. What we mean by good is what we mean by good. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a tautology, but... We're definitely equivocating when we say that uh, God has infinite goodness um, and everyone's nodding their head because it's like, yeah, he has whatever we think of as goodness. Um, and we actually mean by goodness, like something totally different. Okay, let's go on here. Um, although this Augustinian rationale for the justice of hell has had a profound influence on the Western theological tradition, particularly in the past, critics of Augustinian theology, both ancient and contemporary, have raised a number of powerful objections to it. 2.1, retributivist objections. I'm really going to be restricting myself to these because I know that, that I mean, I if someone wants to say that viewing this whole thing in exclusively retributivist terms is uh, a mistake, you know, and we should be looking at this more in terms of restorative justice and you know, God has the power to restore to injured parties whatever it is that was taken from them. You know, I'm all ears to that. I'm very sympathetic to that approach. But the thing is, I like whenever possible to meet my opponents on their own ground. So, you know, insofar as, you know, this this idea that, you know, one is justly condemned to an infinite sentence in hell due to the uh, infinite majesty and dignity of the one whom uh, you have offended against, is rooted in a retributive conception of justice, then I want to, you know, stick with that conception of justice in, in making my uh, response. Okay. One set of objections arises from within the retributive theory itself, and here are three such objections that critics have raised. First, why should the greatness of the one against whom an offense occurs determine the degree of one's personal guilt anyway? 
Yeah, I have really no idea. I, I honestly don't even, I don't know where this principle, you know, that, that, that the, the, the punishment is determined by the dignity of the one who has been offended. I, I don't, I just don't know where that comes from. I don't know its derivation. I don't, it's not a moral intuition that I share. According to most proponents of the retributive theory, the personal guilt of those who act wrongly must depend, at least in part, upon certain facts about them. A schizophrenic young man who tragically kills his loving mother, believing her to be a sinister space alien who has devoured his real mother, may need treatment, they would say, but a just punishment seems out of the question. Similarly, the personal guilt of those who disobey God or violate the divine commands must likewise depend upon the answer to such questions as these. Have they knowingly violated a divine command? And if so, to what extent are they responsible for their own rebellious impulses? To what extent do they possess not only an implicit knowledge of God and the divine commands, but a clear vision of the nature of God? To what extent do they see clearly the choice of roads, the consequences of their actions, or the true nature of evil? Even many Augustinians admit the relevance of such questions when they insist that Adam's sin was especially heinous because he supposedly had special advantages, such as great happiness and the beatific vision that his descendants do not enjoy. If Adam's sin was especially heinous because he had special advantages, then the sins of those who lack his special advantages must be less heinous. And if that is true, some sins against God are less heinous than others. Uh, then the greatness of God cannot be the only or even the decisive factor in determining the degree of one's personal guilt or the seriousness of a given sin. Yeah, and I mean, certainly there are verses in the New Testament where Jesus speaks about some servants um, uh, deserving many blows and others few blows. Um, it's hard hard to make sense of those statements without some kind of common sense assumption of there being gradations and culpability. Second, virtually all retributivists, with the notable exception of the Augustinian theologians, reject as absurd the whole idea of inherited guilt. So why, one may ask, do many Augustinians, despite their commitment to a retributive theory of punishment, insist that God could justly condemn even infants on account of their supposedly inherited guilt? Part of the explanation, according to Philip Quinn, may lie, quote, in a homuncular view of human nature itself, or in what some philosophers might label as a simple category mistake. A good illustration of the homuncular view, as Quinn calls it, might be the following chapter heading in Anselm's Cur Deus Homo. What it was that man, when he sinned, removed from God and cannot repay. The implication of such language, which we also find in Augustine, Calvin, and a host of others, is that humankind or human nature or the human race as a whole is itself a person or homunculus who can act in sin against God. Perhaps that explains how Augustine could write, Quote, man produced depraved and condemned children, for we were all in that one man, since we were all that one man who fell into sin. Unquote. And perhaps it also explains how Calvin could write, quote, even infants themselves, while they carry their condemnation with them from the mother's womb, are guilty not of another's fault, but of their own fault. Unquote. Well, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that Calvin would write that, because, you know, Calvin just straight up says things like, God is the author of sin, and yet he's not responsible for it. And and how that can be, that's just a mystery. I don't claim to know. <laughs> well, it's like, you, you, if you don't know how it can be, I don't see really how you can claim that 
it is and that you know it to be true. That's kind of a problem right there. But, you know, that's really how Augustine uh, writes. And I can say that now having worked my way through a considerable portion of the institutes and having heard, you know, because uh, I listen on audiobook, um, many of the, 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 the passages that I read in my earlier episode, uh, uh, Calvinism, a coda. So, you know, those weren't pulled out of context. That's, that's really what Calvin does. God is the author of evil, but he's not responsible for it. And how that is, is a holy mystery. Deal with it. That's, that's his position. The reasoning here appears to run as follows. Humankind is guilty of a grievous offense against God. Infants are instances of humankind. Therefore, instance, uh, infants are likewise guilty of a grievous offense against God. But most retributivists would reject this way of speaking as simply incoherent. Whether one agrees with it or not, one can at least understand the claim that Adam's sin had disastrous consequences for all his progeny, in that they inherited many defects, deficiencies, and degenerate dispositions. Yeah, that's the more mainstream interpretation of um, kind of originable, uh, original sin. It's a propensity to sin rather than sort of actual inherited guilt. And that certainly makes sense, you know, given our history, our evolutionary history. Um, well, I mean, you might not accept the theory of evolution if you're a young earth creationist or something, but but if you do, then it's there's certainly more than a grain of truth to the claim that we are uh, we are heirs to a rather uh, dark history uh, um, of uh, you know uh, behaviors that have been selected for within Darwinian evolution. Um, uh, including rape and genocide and, and theft and all that. And that, you know, we, we have to some extent inherited uh, urges toward those behaviors. At least I think one could make that argument. One can also understand Calvin's claim that as a result of original sin, our own, in, our own insight is utterly blind and stupid in divine matters, and that man's keenness of mind is mere blindness as far as the knowledge of God is concerned. One can even understand the claim that we are morally responsible for doing something about our inherited defects, provided that we have the power and the opportunity to do so. But the claim that we are born guilty is another matter, as is the claim that we are all deserving of everlasting punishment on account of having inherited certain defects or deficiencies. Most retributivists would regard such inherited defects as excusing conditions that decrease rather than increase the degree of one's personal guilt. So even though the Augustinians accept the idea of divine retribution, they appear at the same time to reject important parts of the retributive theory of punishment. I think those are all good points. Um, later on in this article, they discuss something uh, which they call the free will theodicy of hell. And that's like the, the Arminian as opposed to Calvinist idea that, that um, the gates of hell uh, at least can be uh, understood or theorized to be locked from the inside. It's an agent's own continuing free will choice that leaves them eternally separated from God. And, um, and as I've sa said in other episodes, this is sort of a different topic, but I'll touch it briefly here. The reason why I have problems with this view is that um, I... Well, I mean, I, I tend to take the claims of Christian orthodoxy seriously when, when they say that uh, people who end up in hell are not happy there. 
So it seems to me that if they were truly unhappy there and they always had the choice to, um, you know, repent and turn back to God, uh, then they would eventually do the latter, you know, just, just whenever they realized, you know, how much, uh, separation from God, uh, stinks basically. Um, and, you know, when they are sustained in being long enough to realize the error of their ways and they realize why the things they sought in earthly life were not valid values, they, you know, you can't, you can't worship yourself as you might worship God. You can't worship money as you might worship God. Spend enough time in hell, you know, to my way of thinking, you realize uh, the falseness of those false gods. And, um, you know, you're your heart inclines uh, toward the true God. And if you always have the ability to turn back and repent, um, then eventually you will, because, you know, if hell is suffering, you're not going to freely choose suffering uh, unless it's, you know, you're not going to freely choose suffering indefinitely, unless of course it isn't suffering and it's actually fulfilling enough that you would keep choosing it. But see, that's where I really wish people would get clear and specify which is their position um, because they're always seeming to waffle, uh, you know, between those two claims. So for the record, you know, it's it's not because I think everyone goes to heaven eventually that I think God just positively predestines them there and forces their hand and robs of us robs us of our free will. I believe that we have the the freedom um, to choose infinitely away from God, but no one no one exercises that freedom in that direction infinitely or indefinitely. Um, you know, it's sort of like how when I drive my car, I have the freedom to swerve it into a tree, um, but I don't choose to do that. I have that freedom, but I don't choose to use it. It's two separate questions. Okay, so, you know, now I just want to briefly touch on my sort of my deep reasons for um, rejecting the idea that um, the reason why hell is justly eternal is that God's uh, dignity uh, and moral value are infinite. Here's, here's I think, my, my main objection on an intuitive level. It seems to me about as unjust to sentence, you know, even an adult human um, to an eternity of punishment in hell um, for uh, a finite sin, as it would be to to sentence an infinite an infant to an eternity of hell, because however much knowledge an adult may have of right and wrong, still compared to God, a human being is just so benighted and so limited and so affected by, you know factors beyond his or her control that the guilt which they bear for any transgression is is always limited you know this is especially true when you sort of just rewind the tape of time in the history of of, of a person's life you know take take your analysis back to some decision point and um, ask the question of whether if you rewound the tape of time uh, would some moral agent have made a different choice um, at a given point in their life than the one that which they actually made? Seems to me that 
if if their values and their information remain unchanged at that decision point, they will never make a different decision than the one which they actually made, unless one is supposing that in addition to one's values and information, there is at work in human decision-making some sort of, I don't know, molecular swerve, some fundamental indeterminacy in the sense of randomness, um, which is like tantamount to outside interference. It's not self-determinism anymore. So, you know, if you, if you rewind the tape of time to some, you know, decision point, you find that absent any other changes to their values or their information, the agent in question will just repeat the same decision. And, um, you know, but maybe they're responsible for their values and their information. And you just, so, you know, you, you back up to the point in time where they were in a position to do something about those. And, you know, whether they did or didn't do something about those is contingent upon the values and, and information which they had at that, you know, more prior point in time. And you can go back and back, but you you won't get to the point where the human being pre-exists himself and and is a causa sui and has control over whatever values and information um, that he was drawing upon when he made his first um, decision as a you know morally responsible agent at whatever age that was a human being is 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 self-determining but is not absolutely self-determining because a human being exists contingently he comes into existence he does not exist necessarily in the way that god does and see to me what it sounds like is when when we say that god punishes us infinitely for sins committed you know, in ignorance, because we, we are, you know, I mean, anyone who, who knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that hell lay in wait for them, if they did so much as steal a, a, a can of soda, um, would, would never do that. Or if they did, you know, they would really just be insane, you know, on the level of a lunatic who just keeps, you know, bashing his head into a wall without wanting to. And ordinarily, we would regard insanity as an exculpatory factor. So it seems to me that a God who punishes uh, uh, with with eternal hell uh, sins that are committed in ignorance is essentially holding human beings to a divine standard of knowledge. It, it, it's that God is assuming that we should also have like infinite knowledge of more of of good and evil, but we don't have that precisely. Uh, because of the fact that we are finite creatures as God created us. But you, you might respond uh, with the Augustinians that, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter that it seems unfair to us. God owes us nothing and his ways are, are not our ways. There's no standard of justice, you know, beyond whatever it is that God happens to do. And if you claim otherwise, then who are you, O oh man? Who, who are you? as a clay pot to question uh, the rightness of the potter's decision you know, to, to fashion you as a vessel of wrath. So far, so good. Um, but, you know, I would just ask in response to this, this line of defense whether we can know for certain that the words of the Bible are true, which sounds like a kind of a weird response to give. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sure I would be met with, um, the answer that God is not a liar.
And, you know, I, I would just ask back. I would ask, why? how do you know God's not a liar? He says so in his book. Well, what if God's a liar? Well, God wouldn't be a liar because God has every moral perfection. Well, as, as far as I can see, lying is only a moral perfection. Lying is only necessarily a moral perfection by human standards of morality, but God isn't answerable to those. So what if it was the case that, you know, when you got to heaven um, and you said, uh, hey, you know, let me into the pearly gates. I believed all the right things. Um, God said, oh, yeah, that was a joke. You're going to hell, too. Would that be right? On, on, this, on this line of reasoning, it, it would be. And you would just have to accept it. And, and moreover, it may well be that, that that is the case. That the God who is insane enough uh, to, to, to sentence infants, uh, quote-unquote justly, to an eternal existence of torture is also a God which would do something like that. But, but, but see, the thing is, the problem with this idea that God's morality is just radically different in kind from ours is that ultimately this, this moral worldview is not all that discriminable from uh, just nihilism. Suppose it was the case that as some futurists dream, uh, a technological singularity arises uh, in which um, the very wealthy are able to plug themselves into some kind of, I don't know, Borg cube and, and lead lives that are at least entertaining, you know, in, in the metaverse of virtual reality games. And everyone else are just, you know, peasants, you know, just, or not even that. There's like, like there are a herd of animals that are culled and tagged and vaccinated and killed uh, immediately if they step out of line, you know, and maybe if we're getting really dystopian, they're, they're hunted down by those, those Boston Dynamics dog robots with, you know, like AR-15s on their back or those robots which supposedly can consume organic matter up to and including human flesh um, as a source of fuel. In this reality, uh, for seemingly unfair reasons, there are winners and losers in a game with um, eternal stakes, you know, because the winners get to live forever in this sort of virtual reality existence. And, you know, that may run contrary to our moral sensibilities of how things should desirably pan out. But in such a reality where the, old, the only God is ultimately just whatever happens. In a reality where the highest moral principle is simply that might makes right, who would we be to, to argue against you know, that, that state of affairs? I mean, we could argue against it, but we couldn't do anything about it. And it's this same point which, which Augustinian Christianity gleefully makes in, in response to questions of whether it is just for God to, you know, do things like uh, sentence infants to uh, an eternity of uh, misery in, lim in, in limbo, however mild that may be. It, you know, in other words, to me, this isn't a totally different moral universe than uh, that of Jesus of Nazareth. It's not God any more than the realm of blind chance and matter is God. And you might say, well, 
it, look, this isn't what I want to be the case, but, you know, if you interpret the Bible correctly, this is the only, uh, this is the only interpretation that makes sense. To which I say, that's nonsense. There are so many different possible interpretations of the Bible. It's, it's kind of ridiculous to say that, you know, the, the Augustinian interpretation of the Bible is just, is, is on such firm exegetical ground, which by the way, it's not, um, that, you know, we have to accept this conclusion of, you know, basically moral nihilism as a valid depiction of, uh, who God is. But anyway, uh, if, if I had to really restrict my line of reasoning to one consideration, um, in arguing for uh, universalism, this is probably what I would rest my case on. I would point to uh, the fact that justice consists in some kind of um, proportionality um, between uh, transgression and punishment. You know, really, in the best of all possible worlds, and, and everything is possible with God, you know, uh, punishment should ideally be restorative or reformative, but at the at a minimum, you know, even if it's just retributive, it, it needs to be proportional to the to the infraction. So for me, on those grounds, you know, I can dismiss uh, eternal conscious torment. I can dismiss annihilationism, and I can and should also dismiss that that version of universalism which says that effectively nobody goes to hell and nobody pays any price for their for their sins. So that in a nutshell, is something like my, my master argument for universalism. Again, it's not a position that I hold dogmatically because I obviously have to acknowledge limitations on my own ability to discern the truth. But this is sort of my best thinking on the topic. And if anyone has any other thoughts or perspectives or things that I missed or holes in my argumentation, be sure to reach out to me and, and let me know. And in the meantime, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.